Again, our scripture reading is Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 15. And then our sermon passage is the book of Jude, verses 20 to 23. We'll read the entire book just to help us get the context. It's only, what, 25 or 26 verses, so it's a fairly brief book. Um, But our sermon passage is Jude, verses 20 to 23. So let's first turn to Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 15. Brothers and sisters, I remind you that this is the very Word of God. It is worthy of your full attention. There's nothing more important for you to be doing right now than to listen to, to read along with the reading of God's Holy Word. Colossians 2, 6-15 Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority." In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now turning to the book of Jude, the last book of the Bible, save one, right before the book of Revelation. Our sermon passage again is Jude 20 to 23, but we'll read the entire letter. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. 
But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up from, the, from their own, uh, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building up yourselves in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to show others mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, infallible, and most precious word. His word, which he ensured would be preserved for you and for me. Let us pray. Our gracious God, what a majestic and what a difficult letter we have before us. But Lord, we know that it comes from your hand. We are grateful for this man, Jude, the brother of James. We are thankful, dear Lord, for what he has written and that it has endured. It stood the test of time. And that we have it before us, that we can hear it read to us. We can read it for, our, for ourselves. We're thankful for how it brings glory to your holy name. We're thankful for what it teaches us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would indeed teach us from your word. Please guide us now as your word is preached. Lead us, O Lord, to be glorified. And by your word, help us to be edified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as you may have gathered, you've probably read the letter, this letter written by Jude, named so because named Jude because of whom it was by whom it was written. But it's a letter that was originally undertaken to encourage fellow believers in the salvation that they shared in Jesus Christ. Apparently, Jude 
though he might not have had a personal connection with this people, he had heard about this church to whom he writes. He'd heard about the fact that they were fellow believers and he wanted originally to write them a letter that would encourage them in their faith. But at some point, after he had decided to write them this encouraging letter, he heard about the dangers that this congregation, that this group of believers now faced. And so he had to change tack when he learned that the recipients of the letter's church had been infiltrated by false teachers. Some men had crept in, some people had come in, and they were teaching another gospel. They were teaching a false gospel. They were leading people astray. And so Jude tells them in verse 3 that he found it necessary to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then in verse 17, he challenged his readers to remember the apostles' prophecies, their predictions regarding the false teachers. And then Jude enumerates for the reader the content of their prophecies. These false teachers are scoffers who cause divisions, who are devoid of the Holy Spirit. That's what the apostles had warned those who came after them about. Now in this morning's passage, Jude contrasts the readers of his letter with the false teachers. He says it in verse 17, and he says it again in verse 20 in our passage, but you, beloved. He's drawing a contrast. He spends the bulk of the letter talking about these false teachers. He spends the bulk of the letter describing what they are up to and how dangerous they are. And then he says to this group of believers, wherever they were, he says to them, but you, beloved, The false teachers did not have the Holy Spirit. They were not true believers. But he says the believers, that believers are different. They do possess the Holy Spirit. And they will grow more different as they build themselves up in their most holy faith, as they pray in the Holy Spirit, as they keep themselves in the love of God, etc. But Jude also makes very clear in this passage that despite the very harsh language regarding the false teachers and their coming judgment, he reminds them that not only is God a God of justice, but He's also a God of mercy. Three times in the four verses of our passage for the sermon, Jude uses the word mercy. Once in regard to the mercy of Jesus Christ and twice in regard to the mercy that Christians must show to one another. As we work our way through the sermon today, I'd ask you to to keep this thought before you. Your most holy faith is a faith in which God shows mercy to sinners who deserve judgment. Let me say that again. Your most holy faith is a faith in which God shows mercy to sinners who deserve judgment. The sermon is three parts. The first, building, praying, waiting. The second, keep yourselves. And the third part, simply mercy. Again, the first part of the sermon, building, praying, waiting. The second, keep yourselves. And the third, mercy. So let's look at the first section of the sermon, building, praying, and waiting. In verse 20, as we briefly mentioned in the introduction, Jude is now contrasting the Christians to whom he writes with the false teachers who have come into the church. They've come in from outside. In verse 20, we've already mentioned this, it says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit... 
He'll say later in verse 21, waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ. Unlike the false teachers who are trying to tear down the church and who are, as Jude said in verse 19, causing divisions in the church, they, that is true believers, are to build themselves up. These words that Jude uses for building yourselves up as well as praying and waiting, these are participles. Some of you know what that means and some of you don't. It means simply that they are verbal nouns or verbal adjectives. It's, it's a way of language. We do it all the time. We take something that's a verb and we, we turn it into a noun or we have a noun and we verbalize it. And these three participles are clustered around the only true verb in our passage. In verses 20 and 21, the word that they are translated, keep yourselves, that's the verb and it's an imperative or it's a command. That's found in verse 21. And because of the connection of these three participles, Uh, building, praying, and waiting, because of their connection to the verb, keep yourselves, they too have the force of an imperative. They too have the force of a command. And so building and praying and waiting, they are dependent upon the command to keep themselves in the love of God. There's this organic connection between all of these words. And so the way that they are to keep themselves in the love of God, the way that you are to keep yourselves in the love of God is by building yourselves, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, and by waiting for the mercy of Jesus Christ. That's how you are to keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, it's important here to understand that Jude is not talking about this building up as an individual uh, effort, an individual endeavor, not primarily anyway. Sure, there are things that you can do as an individual, but all of the words in this first clause in verse 20 are in the plural. But you, plural plural pronoun, y'all, but y'all, beloved, plural noun, Building, plural participle, yourselves, plural pronoun, up in your, plural pronoun, most holy faith. This is a group, a church endeavor. And those Christians, now there are extreme circumstances, we understand it, extraordinary circumstances, which in some cases require Christians to be out on their own. But that is not the ordinary, the rule of thumb. Those are extraordinary. And in America, there's almost no excuse Because we have churches still in sort of the, whatever you want to call this era of American history, we still have churches all over the place. In Texas, there is no excuse to go it alone. We're to do this together. The building up or edification of the Christian believer is primarily, primarily, not exclusively, primarily a corporate endeavor. The body of Christ is made up of many parts. But how are they and how are you, how are we to build up our faith? Well, Jude doesn't exactly provide a concrete answer. I think he does offer some insights. But to gain further understanding, we'll have to let other passages of Scripture interpret this one. We can start by saying that collectively building up the church into a unified group comes about as a result of the the promotion and proclamation of the truth, God's word. Jude referred to God's word when 
He spoke of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He's speaking of the faith as a set of beliefs. We studied the Athanasian Creed a little bit in the adult Sunday school class this morning, and it talks about that this is the one holy Catholic faith, and then it proceeds to, de- to delineate, to define what that faith is. In other words, what is the content of that faith? And so Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What is the foundation of the apostles and prophets? What is that? The, The apostles and prophets are long dead. And so does it literally mean, as the Roman Catholic Church believes that it means, that they are literally in the foundation of the literal physical church in the Vatican? Is that what it means? No. The foundation is what they taught. It's what they proclaimed. It's what is recorded. It's the Word of God, specifically. Paul also writes in Colossians chapter 2, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You are built up in the same way as you received Christ, by being taught, by God's Word being preached, proclaimed, by being instructed in God's Word. And so... How do you build yourself up in your most holy faith? By making diligent use of the ordinary means of grace. Specifically God's word. Especially as it is read and preached in the morning and evening on the Lord's day. But also through the other ordinary means which we'll get to in just a moment. Right now we're focusing on that first. uh, Both primarily uh, and even chronologically the first which is the word of God. Next, Jude mentions praying in the Holy Spirit. These believers, as possessors of the Holy Spirit, are called to pray in the Holy Spirit. This, once again, sets them in sharp contrast with the false teachers who don't possess the Holy Spirit. They don't have it, these false teachers. Don't listen to them. They have no illumination. They have no guidance. They have no one who is listening to them. They are false. But you, beloved, you have the Holy Spirit. Pray in the Holy Spirit. The Christians to whom Jude writes, and indeed all Christians, gain access to God through his own provision, himself. The gift of the Holy Spirit to believers makes them able to pray to God. And prayer is, of course, another of the ordinary means of grace that God has appointed. So that when we pray in faith, God has promised that through prayer he will convey his grace to us. Prayer is a a two-way street. You pray to God. He gives grace to you. It's a blessed thing. Your Father hears your voice. He knows your cry. He is not inattentive to the words that you speak to Him. And so in keeping themselves in the love of God, Jude has now mentioned two of the means of grace these directly, the third he will bring, in, bring to bear somewhat indirectly. And then skipping down to the second half of verse 21, Jude writes, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And this is the way in which he indirectly makes reference to the third means of grace. Jude here is speaking of the mercy of Jesus that will be displayed when he returns. The key word there is waiting. 
We who uh, live as Christians after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ to his Father's right hand, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for his return. That's what Jude is talking about here. The word waiting, like building up and praying, it has the force of an imperative, even though it's a participle, because it's linked to the command, keep yourselves, in verse 21. Now, you'll remember as we read through the whole book of Jude, this whole letter, but back in verses 14 and 15, Jude has already referenced Jesus' second coming there. He said there that the Lord would come to execute judgment and convict the ungodly. That's in the context of, of Jude's strong words about these false teachers. He does, not, he does not mince words when he's dealing with the false teachers. He condemns them with his words in anticipation of the condemnation that they will experience when Jesus Christ returns at the last day. And so Jude was referring there to the final judgment when Christ would come back to judge those who continued in their rebellion against Christ as king. But Jude here in verse 21 is referring to Christ's second coming as well. It's, it's a little less obvious, but it's, it's there. What are you waiting on? You're waiting on Christ to come back. But instead of judgment, and this is key for you, brothers and sisters, if you trust in Jesus Christ, if he is indeed your Savior, instead of judgment... For the believer, there is eager anticipation of mercy. You don't need to fear Christ's second coming if you're a believer in the Lord. Now, for those who don't believe in the Lord, yes, it is a day of judgment. It is a fearsome day. While it is called today, while it's still called today, bend your knee to the Lord in faith and submission. But for the believer who does in this life submit to the Lord by faith, it is not a day to fear. It's not a day to be anxious about. It is a day not of judgment, but of mercy. Now Jude has already made it very clear to his readers that they are in the last time. He's writing in the first century A.D. They're in the last time. That's what he said. That's the phrase he used in verse 18. And he's saying to them, Jesus could return at any moment. Christ's return, as far as he is concerned, as far as other New Testament writers are concerned, his return is imminent. It can happen at any time. You've got to be ready for it. 2,000 years later, Jesus' return could still be at any moment. We don't know the day or the hour, but we have to be ready. But we also need to remember that he will come back bringing Mercy for his people. But how do we maintain a constant sense of expectation? We are in the waiting room, as it were. We're waiting. Some of you have been privileged, and, and the women among us, you've been privileged to have a lengthy, long, days-long labor waiting for the delivery of the little one. I say that because... It's, I don't know how else to describe it. And of course, I haven't gone through it personally. But I know people who have. When will this baby ever come? When will this baby ever be born? And it's painful. And it takes time. Some of you have been blessed with very quick and easy deliveries. And, and God bless you. Um, that's wonderful. And it's awesome. But not everybody is. But waiting is hard. Waiting is difficult for creatures who are made of dust. 
whose minds are finite, who barely can see beyond the next day, much less the next week or the next year or the next decade. Waiting is difficult. Christ's return is imminent, but we grow impatient. How do we wait? How do we get through it? Well, through the reading, the teaching, the preaching of the word, for sure. Through prayer, both individual prayer, but also corporate prayer, because prayer as as an intrinsically worshipful act transports us into God's presence. But there's another way that we maintain a constant sense of expectation regarding Jesus' return. Through the right administration, the right use of the sacraments. So here's our indirect reference to the third means of grace. It's fascinating that in the institution of both sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, Jesus makes reference to his second coming. When he institutes the Lord's Supper, he tells the disciples that he will not eat of it with them again until after he returns. And so when we observe the Lord's Supper, it is, it is an anticipation of, it's a participation in that great feast. The Lamb's great supper, his feast. There to partake, we are to partake of the meal in remembrance of him. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We take it with great anticipation, excitement. We're longing for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when Jesus instituted baptism, what does he say? He tells them to baptize those that they are making disciples. And then he says, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Baptism points to that great day when Jesus Christ will come in judgment to those who hate him, but with great mercy for those who love him. And so the sacraments, they point to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so looking at it from the other side, Jude, when he talks about waiting for the Lord to come with mercy... He's making a reference to the sacraments. This is how we wait. This is how we get about biding our time, getting through the difficulty of waiting. The institution of the sacraments are in the context of Jesus talking about his return. Both point to the fact that he is coming again. And so as we said, waiting for Jesus to return, it's downright hard. We forget, we get distracted, we get seduced and drawn away from our eagerly waiting for Him to return. We we get caught up in other pursuits. We turn our face away from Christ. We look to other things. But Jesus has given us the sacraments as well as the other means of grace to help us to remember, to remember Him, to remember that He is coming again. And to remember that when He does, He will judge the wicked, but will give mercy to those who belong to Him. And so I will say this to you. If you are not in the Lord, you ought to dread the return of Jesus Christ because he will come as your judge. Today is the day to repent and to believe if you don't believe in him. Because when he returns, which could be at any moment, it might be before the end of the service, before we get to have our glorious congregational meeting, he could come back and then it will be too late. It's too late. Today is the day. Today is today, the day to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you who do believe, Christ's return is not something to be afraid of, to dread. Yes, you have sins. 
Yes, you've got sins that you forgot decades ago that that perhaps you will be reminded of, but you will be robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is a day of mercy for you if you trust in Him, not of judgment. That's the promise that God's Word holds out to all who believe. That's the promise that if you don't believe, He holds out to you if you will simply accept it in faith. Well, that takes us to our second point, which I promise is not as long as the first. Keep yourselves. With this in mind, we can now turn and look at the first half of verse 21. We conveniently skipped over that to get to that third participle. We can go back to the first half of verse 21, which gives the command, keep yourselves in the love of God. If the first half of verse 21 was extracted from its context and posted somewhere by itself, you might wonder how it's possible to keep yourself in the love of God. This sounds like an impossible command for us to keep. Why would, why would Jude, the author of the Word of God, tell us to do something that's impossible for us to do? And especially if you, like all good Reformed folks, have a robust understanding of your own sinfulness and you recognize that you haven't done anything to deserve staying in God's love. How can I keep myself in God's love? Now this is not to deny or shirk our own responsibility, but more to consider just how difficult it is for sinners to keep themselves in God's love. If it were up to you, if it were your in your power alone to keep yourself in the love of God. You could not do it. And so is this an impossible command that Jude gives us? Well, Jude has already addressed the recipients of this letter in verse 1 as those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, making it clear that God does the calling and the loving, but also the keeping. He is the one who is the keeper of your heart. And so in verse 21, this is a case where the imperative to keep yourselves in the love of God flows out of the indicative, the statement of fact, the statement of truth, that you are loved by God and kept for Him. God loves you and keeps you. Keep yourself in the love of God. And so the command to keep ourselves in God's love and our ability to obey it comes as a result of already being loved by God and kept by Him for Himself. But there is a command here in verse 21. And the Christians to whom Jude wrote, as well as us, we are called to be obedient. So how do we go about this business of keeping ourselves in the love of God? How do we do it? Well, Jude gives us the answer the way that he's constructed the sentence. We are to keep ourselves in God's love by building ourselves up in our most holy faith through the reading and the preaching of God's word. We are to keep ourselves in God's love by praying in the Holy Spirit. We are to keep ourselves in God's love by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ when he returns at the end of the age. And so to put it another way, we are to keep ourselves in the love of God by the diligent use of the ordinary means of grace, namely and especially the Word of God, the sacraments, and prayer. That's what God tells you you have to do in order to keep yourselves. And we have to think about the converse. If we're not doing these things, if we're keeping ourselves from the ordinary means of grace, then that could be a sincere, a serious problem, can't it? 
there's a qualification here, as we mentioned before, that the diligent use of the means of grace is only properly carried out when they are partaken of in faith. In other words, if you don't have faith in in Jesus Christ, if you don't trust in Him to be your Savior and your Lord, then your baptism, if you were baptized as an infant, or if you were baptized as one who is older, but you don't really believe it, it doesn't matter. Your baptism has no efficacy for you. It's not effective. You can partake of the Lord's Supper. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, it is not going to do you any good. And sitting under the preaching and the teaching of the word without faith, praying to the Lord without faith, these, these do, do you no good. And so you can't just show up for worship, go through the motions, and expect that, expect that grace automatically will be dispensed to you in some sort of mechanistic fashion. You must be diligent, deliberate in your use of the means of grace that God has appointed. Preparing yourselves beforehand so that when you enter worship on the Lord's Day, you will receive the benefits God graciously gives you. And all of this, of course, is wrapped up in the concept, in the idea, in the necessity of faith. You must have faith. And that brings us to the third and the final point of the sermon, mercy. Verses 22 and 23 read this way, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. These verses are grounded in what Jude said in verse 21, that they are to keep themselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Jude is calling on these believers to walk obediently. And the first command that he gives them in verse 22 is to have mercy on those who doubt. As with the imperatives before, so here the command to have mercy is rooted in an indicative. In this case, the indicative of the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ for which they are waiting. Christ has shown you mercy. He is going to show you mercy on the last day, not judgment. Therefore, you have mercy on those who doubt. I'm sure that no one here in this room ever has had a doubt about their faith. No one in this room currently is having any doubts about their faith, right? Right. Every one of us either has or will have doubts about their faith. Every one of us has or will have a time where they will walk through the valley of the shadow of death, uncertain whether they will make it out the other side. And there are some of you who are sitting here right now who are having serious doubts. And you can't even give voice to those doubts because you are afraid that as soon as you do, bam! Somebody's going to bring the hammer down on your head. How dare you! What does Jude say? What does he say? Have mercy on those who doubt. Doubting is not unordinary. Doubting is part and parcel with faith in Jesus Christ because we live in a fallen world. Think about your own life and the times when you have doubted. If someone had slapped you down, what would it have done to you? Perhaps some of you were slapped down. By God's grace, by His grace you made it through and still have faith. Have mercy. Show mercy on those who doubt. 
We can show mercy to those who doubt because of the great mercy that we have been shown already and that we will be shown on the last day. Let's look at the specifics of what Jude is saying in verse 22. He commands his readers to show mercy specifically to those who doubt. And most likely he has in mind the people in that church who have been swayed by the false teachers and as a result are now doubting. And brothers and sisters, false teachers creep in and it doesn't necessarily mean that they are teaching false doctrine, although oftentimes it is. Oftentimes they are behaving in ways that are coming out of a false belief on their part. In this case, specifically, the false teachers were trying to lead true believers astray, if that were possible. Now imagine the pain of seeing people with whom you had been very close, with whom you shared a common faith in Christ, now, died, now doubting their faith. This kind of situation often angers some. It scares others because it makes you realize, wait a minute, I... Don't, don't get near me. Don't contaminate me with your doubts. I don't want to be led to have the same doubts. I don't have the answers. I don't know how to help you. I don't even want to know about what you're doubting. And so Christians become angry with when other Christians begin to doubt because it's, to us, the Christian faith makes perfect sense. We've reconciled all of those areas in the faith that, that make us have questions, or we just kind of push them back into a closet in our minds and don't open that closet very often. Other Christians become afraid, perhaps, because their faith is not as strong as they would like, and fresh doubts are stirred up in their minds whenever they find out about another Christian's doubts. But rather than going, becoming angry or going on the offensive or becoming scared and hiding yourself away, Jude commands you and me, he commands us to show mercy to those who doubt. If you have true faith in Jesus Christ, you don't need to be worried that your faith is going to be contaminated by the doubts of another believer's. There are things you may not understand about the Christian faith. And perhaps other people do understand those things and you don't. Give it over to the Lord. Trust in Him. Don't be worried by the worries of others. We have to remember rather than becoming angry with those who have doubts, that, as Paul says, while we were still enemies with God, Christ died for us. He wasn't afraid of becoming contaminated with the doubts of those for whom he died. And so again, it, ha it goes back to remembering, back to being built up in the Word, praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting for the Lord's return as we constantly remind ourselves of what he has done. That's how you handle the doubts of others. That's how you remain strong enough in your own faith that you can come alongside another believer who is struggling with theirs and put your arm around them and help them to get across the finish line. Or at least to get across the, the next marker on the field. And some of you have had that happen to you, literally and figuratively. And you know what it means. We can help each other carry our load, but we have to be together in order to do it. We can't be lone rangers of the faith and think that we're strong enough to stand on our own apart from the body of Christ. In verse 23, Jude says, save others by snatching them from the fire. Once again, Jude gives a command, you all, y'all, save others. There are times where we as a body of Christ have to go after someone and pull them back. Just as we would go after a child who's about to wander into the street out there. 
It doesn't matter if that child is your child. You're not going to let them walk into the street. You're going to go and grab them or yell at them, fuss at them, get them out of the road. And you're doing so in love. And these people to whom Jude refers in verse 23, who need need saving, they, they seem to have been drawn further and further into the false teacher's error rather than those who are simply doubting. And so the church is to snatch them, to grab them from the fire. And one commentator wrote that this word translated snatch means to take something forcefully. It's the church equivalent of a search and rescue mission. And Jude here is speaking to the church as a whole. We have a duty, all of us, when we realize that one of our members is straying to go after them, to lovingly lead them back into the fold, or if need be, to snatch them from the fires of hell. While the primary responsibility rests on the shoulders of the pastors and the elders, you too have an obligation to reach out to those you know are wandering away and talk to them, engage with them. And finally, Jude says to show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. There are instances where we need to be careful when dealing with those who are, in a sense, even further astray. Those who doubt those who are wandering a little further, and then it seems that there are some who are in grave danger, and we need to be careful, but still show mercy, though with fear. And Jude here seems to be speaking of people who have followed false teachers into their sexual immorality or some severe, serious false doctrine. While these people need to be shown mercy by the church of which they have been a part, care needs to be taken. The false teachers are beyond the pale. Nowhere in this letter does Jude say anything about trying to lead the false teachers back because they never truly were a part of the church. And so we're not to beat down the person who has been led into sin. Instead, they are to lovingly be led back from their sin. They must take care so that they are not themselves led into sin. But for the false teachers, Jude's saying, they're gone, they're beyond the pale. They are the ringleaders who are deliberately trying to bring others down with them. They are the literal one. They are uh, the ones who uh, Matthew talks about, Jesus talks about in Matthew, but when he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened, fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. But to the little ones, both literal and figurative, Jude commands us to show mercy. And we can only show mercy to those who are sinning if we remember that we too were shown mercy because we were sinners. And so we must remember, brothers and sisters, through the diligent use of the ordinary means of grace, what Jesus Christ did for us. In coming to take our place on the cross by undergoing the wrath of his father that was meant for you and me. We must remember this. And when we do so, we will be able to wait with eager anticipation upon the Lord's return. But we'll also be able to show mercy to those with doubts, to snatch those out of the fire to keep those who are being led astray from being led astray because of the great mercy that has been shown to us.
And that, brothers and sisters, is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for what you have done in establishing for us these ordinary means. You've given us to us your word. You've instituted for us the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And you've given us means of direct access to you by prayer. By adopting us into your family as sons and daughters. We are grateful, dear Lord, that you hear us when we cry. We call out to you. That you know our voices, you know our names. And that we pray that we would show mercy. That we would be compassionate to those who are doubting your goodness, who are doubting your word, who are doubting the sincerity of their own faith. Please help us to have mercy upon them, to show them mercy, to extend kindness and love. That in so doing, O Lord, we might be your agent, your instrument of snatching them out of the fire. So please help us, Lord, to remember the great mercy that you have shown and to look forward to the great mercy that you will show to your people when you return. And to show that mercy to others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.